Hello, and welcome to SAC 320, a deep dive on implementing security and governance across a multi-account strategy. Uh, I'm Matt Brudden, and I'm joined here by my colleague, Joshua Dulac. And we're part of the uh, security risk and compliance practice within professional services. Uh, for those of you that haven't dealt with professional services or the security risk and compliance practice, our goal is to really work with enterprises to help them move on to AWS in a quicker and more secure manner. So we work with a lot of the large organizations and help them understand what it means to be secure and actually work hands-on to actually build our prototypes and um, actually help them implement their best practices and security policies within AWS. So today, what we're actually going to dive into is kind of some of the problems that we've been working with our clients on when they decide to move into a multi-account strategy. Now, within this session, we're going to cover some of the baseline around why you want to look at a multi-account strategy. And then we're also going to dive into some of the um, solutions on how to deal with account management. So going from one to 10 accounts is relatively straightforward. You can still do a lot of that manually. As, far as, as soon as you start looking at the 20s, 40s, hundreds, or thousands of accounts, we want to start looking at a way to automate that. So we're going to take you through some of the frameworks and solutions we've worked through with clients and internally with an AWS on that. And then we're also going to talk about uh, role management. So when you start looking at how do you uh, provide identity in all these hundreds of thousands of accounts, we want to provide you with some of the solutions on that. And then from a, a continuous assurance standpoint, how do you always validate that these accounts are meeting your security best practices and baselines across your organization. And then finally, we'll conclude with some incident response recommendations for you. So if an incident were to occur, an event were to occur in one of your accounts, how do you respond to that in a timely manner from identification to actually remediation of that event? So first off, why do you want to look at a multi-account strategy? One of the reasons we come across most frequently is you want to define blast radius across your organizations. Um, oftentimes, you could do this with IAM policies and have it across regions or even have really strict policies around using tagging or um, service catalog or something like that. But when we start talking about um, the blast radius, you may want that even more constrained and more hardened in nature. So that's when we're going to look at a, a count as the blast radius itself is now a, a count to another account is no different from AWS perspective than you in another organization or another company entirely. We're going to have that fully isolated from each other. Now, you have the ability to create the uh, collaboration between those two, which we'll go into in a little bit. The next topic that we normally hear is around consolidated billing. Yes, you could very well use tagging and other constructs to actually do showback or billback within your organization, but it's also uh, we find a lot easier if you're your individual business units could actually have their own accounts. It's now it fully rolls up. It's a lot easier to show the organization from an S3 or EC2 usage how much they're actually using and build that organization or third party back correctly. And then there is also the VPC or account limits that are inherent within AWS. For example, within a given region, you may only be allowed to have five VPCs within the region. For your particular organization, this may be too few, and by splitting that out across accounts, you're able to bypass that limitation and ensure that your business is able to operate as you expect. And finally, one of the great examples that we come up to is if you're dealing with mergers and acquisition activity. If you're building out a new service that you feel that you may want to sell off or uh, divest yourself from in the future, having it in a dedicated account allows you to do that in a much easier manner. Now, instead of having to actually rebuild your infrastructure, perhaps provide the initial cloud formation templates, or actually um, provide access into your own account, you can literally just provide the root credentials and have them take over the root credentials and then create their own identity from there to gain them the access. 
So when we actually look at what a, account, a multi-account setup looks like, this is the normal diagram of what we're seeing at our customers. We're seeing normally an enterprise has their existing data center, and they're connecting into us via backbone. This could be via direct connect or a VPN connection, depending on the account. From there, you have a number of resource accounts. This is really where your business units are running their, uh, their workloads themselves. So this is where they're spinning up their EC2 instances, um, using our different services, such as S3, what have you. And we normally see a, a minimum of, of two other dedicated accounts. One of those accounts that we're going to talk heavily upon is the security account. This is a significantly hardened account with very limited access for your general population, but this is where all your centralized logging is going to occur to. So your CloudTrail, um, your VPC flow logs, your ELB logs, whatever you really want to have immediate access to and then drive decisions based upon, that's going to be sitting within your security account. As we get further along in this presentation, we're going to talk about some of the other services that you could be building within that security account, too, to help you through your uh, continuous automation around your security events as well. The other account that we normally see is a consolidated billing account. This is, from a logical perspective, where all your accounts are rolling up into. Um, and allows you to actually have that billing construct so that it, again, locked down to specific individuals that require that access. So generally speaking, you may feel that your organization and your business unit shouldn't be able to um, be able to see that detailed billing reports, and therefore, within the consolidated billing account, you have that ability to lock that down. So dealing with all those accounts um, has been a challenge for customers historically, um, and making sure that you have the appropriate governance in place when you're growing from tens of accounts to hundreds of accounts, and making sure you have an appropriate baseline. And so we... Um, launched in limited public preview this week uh, a new service called AWS Organizations. Um, if you haven't heard of this, definitely take a look. Um, it's a new capability that allows customers to centrally control and manage multiple AWS accounts. Additionally, you'll gain some uh, um, features that will enable you uh, to apply uh, what we're calling organizational control policies across these accounts. Uh, which will allow you to control which services and API calls those accounts and the entities within them uh, can operate with. Um, additionally, you can gain the ability to programmatically create new accounts uh, going forward as well. From a high level, there's a number of key concepts we want to talk about. So we have the actual organization itself. This is just the consolidated set of all the accounts that you have and you want to centrally control. And then you have the AWS accounts themselves. Uh, sometimes I'll refer to this as the child account, uh, but those accounts that Matt was talking about in the diagram would be these AWS accounts. And then you have a master account. If you're familiar with consolidated billing, this is essentially the same thing. Uh, you would mi migrate from a consolidated billing account to the master account automatically when you're activating AWS organizations. So you want to make sure you choose the master account wisely. And then you'll define the organizational units. This is how you would view your organization. Um, and we'll take a look at what that means. And then I mentioned the organizational control policy. And um, specifically, we'll talk about service control policies so you can define uh, what services and APIs you're allowing your team to use within those accounts. So we have a high-level diagram of what AWS organizations looks like. We're going to have that master account there at the top. And then the way my organization uh, thinks about our accounts is development accounts, test accounts, and production accounts. So I'm going to create organizational units for those three things. And then I'm going to assign child accounts uh, to that. So I'm going to assign some accounts to development, some accounts to test, some accounts to production. And then I can apply the service control policies 
uh, anywhere within that. So I'll apply one to the master account, one to the organizational units, uh, as well as perhaps one to the child account itself. Now when we're evaluating those policies, um, it's important to understand how they actually function. So let's say we have a service control policy uh, or the union of uh, service control policies, so all of them together, uh, that allow EC2 and S3. And then within a child account, I'm gonna have an IM policy assigned perhaps to a group, a role, or a user that is allowing EC2 and SQS. So it's actually, when we're evaluating, it's actually gonna take the intersection of those two. So it's still a default deny. So both policies allowed EC2, but in this case, S3 and SQS are not being allowed because again, it is the intersection of those two policies. Now moving forward, when you're adding more accounts, it's important to make sure you have an appropriate baseline. And so using something like CloudFormation templates or perhaps your favorite uh, programming language, you can use our SDKs, our Ruby SDK or Python Boto SDK to make sure you have uh, appropriate deployment mechanisms in place uh, to make sure you have consistent repeatability across all of your accounts. And then you want to commit those to your favorite repository. It could be a Git repository, it could be Subversion, but you want to make sure you gain the benefits of versioning and historical information, as well as adding a readme file so somebody in the future uh, that needs to maintain those deployment scripts or templates uh, can know what you're doing, as well as identifying changes on who made the change and when um, as we're launching new services and features to make sure you're having an appropriate baseline going forward. And whenever you're programmatically adding accounts using AWS organizations, it's important to make sure you have new accounts set up um, to add it appropriately. So in the case of uh, cloud services, uh, before you can actually provision resources, you need access. So you need to actually set up the identity and access management controls. Uh, so in the case, we'll talk about roles and policies in a bit, uh, as well as turning on the appropriate logging mechanisms. So we often will say our best practices that you turn CloudTrail on in all regions, but you want to look at what other logging uh, capabilities you need to enable and make sure you're aggregating those appropriately as well. And another one I, I like to talk about with customers is your VBC and your networking. You wanna make sure you have a consistent commonality between all of your accounts. If every account in your hundreds or thousands of accounts has a different VPC style with different subnets, it's gonna create an operational headache when you're trying to troubleshoot and you're looking up a network diagram for a very specific account. So if you have a commonality in your networking across these accounts, it'll help you troubleshoot a lot faster. So now that we understand kind of the account management standpoint, how are you going to start looking at managing the actual access into these accounts? Um, this is also an interesting part because when we start thinking about this, you have a number of different options natively within AWS today. You could actually create local IAM users and roles within each of these hundreds or thousands of accounts, which obviously is a, a bit of a nightmare when it comes to managing and ensuring that when movers and levers occur within your organization that they're properly reflected within AWS as well. Then you also have the option to actually federate within your, within your internal identity provider direct access into AWS as well. Now this has to be done on a per account basis, which adds some complexity, but could easily be scripted out if you so choose. The last option really is around a centralized authentication account. This allows you to actually create a centralized security account and then allow access into that one account, which then has a trust policy into your individual resource accounts. Now there's some definitely pros and cons across all these, and you have to make that decision. But today we also wanted to uh, provide another framework for you. We're calling this framework the Multi-Account Strategic Compliance and Operations Tool, or MASCOT for short. Um, we spent a lot of time coming up with this acronym too, by the way. 
Um, so what this is, this is a framework that internally to AWS, we use this framework. It allows us to manage our internal accounts. And within professional services, we actually worked with Intuit as well to actually help them manage their accounts through this process as well. And now what this allows you to do is that it allows you to make it easier for your employees and their teams to use AWS accounts while still allowing the organization to manage those accounts and the IM roles within them. So what does this actually mean? From an onboarding perspective, what this means is that when you register an account into Mascot, you, we're actually allowing you to capture metadata around that account. So for example, the environment that it belongs in. Is it a production account, a non-production account? Is it a test account? Um, we're also able, allowing you to capture the data classification of that account. Are you dealing with customer data or PCI data or HIPAA data in that account? Yes, then we're able to use this data later on when we talk around the continuous assurance programs to make risk-based decisions on that account. So for example, if you see something suspicious in that account, if it's a production account, that's going to re require a faster remediation than it may be in a dev or a test account. And based upon the customer data as well, you can make those risk-based decisions. Additionally, now we're also allowing you to capture the owners of the account. Now obviously you as an organization are the owner of the account, but who as the individual owner of that account also allows you to have a point of person to follow up on in terms of an event or incident within that as well. The other thing from an operation standpoint, we're allowing federated access to the AWS Management Console. Now individuals don't need to log in multiple locations, you have single sign-on, you're able to quickly view the number of accounts and roles that you have permissions to from Active Directory in one example, and you're able to have one-click access into the portal from there. Additionally, it allows for role creation and management in those individual accounts, as well as the security policy template creation and management. So similar to how AWS provides you with managed IAM policies, this framework could allow you to provide your organization with the same type of managed policies as well. So as an administrator of this system, you could say, these are the list of policies that you as an individual have access to, and you could then create your roles and deploy them from there. The last, no, sorry. So let's dive into what this actually looks like from a high level. You have an individual logging into a portal. This could be via single sign-on or using your, your domain credentials into the portal. From there, you're accessing our service, the mascot service, which is running within your security account. The back end of that is a database which is capturing all the roles and permissions that the, that individual is able to access based upon his Active Directory group in this example, as well as some of the security credentials we need to actually assume into those other accounts. Each role within each of the accounts has a unique external ID. For those that haven't used the external ID within the assume role STS call, it allows us to have a unique identifier that we could keep locked down as well. So even if someone knows the role and has the access key and secret key for that role, they need that the actual external ID as well to actually perform that role assumption. So if we dive in a little bit deeper now, this is what it's actually looking like from a service standpoint. You have an account owner, which is the individual that's actually onboarded the account onto Mascot, as well as a federated user. From there, it goes into our Mascot service. This allows us to A, federate with your internal identity provider, and the example we're show, gonna show you in a little bit is Active Directory. It also allows us to have uh, account management built into that, as well as a second owner workflow, so if the primary owner leaves the organization, we can automatically perform remediation steps and follow up a why. Um, here's where we integrate with your Active Directory. And then what it also does through the audit trail is ties us into a database. So now every action that's performed within Mascot is being logged for your identification and follow-up as well. 
So what that means is, so when a user uses this to log into an assume role into an account, we're capturing that information. So when you identify between this and the CloudTrail events that are also being captured, hopefully, as you've turned that on, that you're able to correlate the events more effectively. Additionally, what we're able to see is if the data classification from the account changes, we're actually able to audit this. So now if someone's manipulating a data classification or an environmental variable on the account, we're able to capture that, perform an action to say, hey, you just moved a production account back down to a dev account. Why that happened? Is that supposed to have happened? Or are you trying to do something from a malicious standpoint? We're able to capture that and actually tie it into a ticketing system to verify that we're auditing and remediating that stuff as quickly as possible. So now we're actually going to provide you with a demo of Mascot. Number four. Yep. Um, so this is what you see. Uh, obviously, I'm not attached to a domain right now. I'm using the same Wi-Fi all of you are. But if this was a domain, you could have the single sign-on functionality. But when we sign on to this, hopefully that Wi-Fi and everything works. The demo gods are good. Yep. Um, what we're seeing here is the accounts that I've been accounts and roles that I've been provisioned to. So within this, we're actually seeing two accounts here. Um, there are some details around this. So the top account is the account that I actually own and created for. The bottom account is a role that I belong to within the Active Directory, which I'll show you in a little bit as well, that I've automatically been provisioned for. So as an AD user assigned to that group, that automatically appears up here. Within Mascot, you're able to register an account, as I talked about earlier. Here's where we're capturing that metadata I talked about. So when you create an account, you enter the data classification of that account, what type of data it holds, does it hold no sensitive data, as well as the data around the environment itself, which we're going to be using to make those risk-based decisions, decisions that I alluded to. To actually onboard an account, it's a relatively straightforward process. You provide us with an IAM credential, not the root credential, but an IAM user credential that has IAM star privileges, so essentially an admin that credential is not being stored by us. We're actually using that credential to create two new roles within that onboarded account. One is a security auditor role, which essentially only has read-only permissions. The other role we're creating is the mascot role we're going to be using to assume roles, as well as perform remediation steps in case of an emergency. We're also capturing the primary owner of the account. Here it automatically pulls in my Active Directory credential, as well as the account description, which I'm going to use to recognize that account in the future. So once you register account, you can then create your policy templates. Here you have the ability to see the existing policy templates that as an organization I'm provisioned and able to see, but I'm also able to add a custom IAM policy. So if we create a new policy template, uh, allow all, and we're going to create a, that was everything, we're going to make this real simple on myself. We clicked and added that. This is now a policy that we can now use as an organization to allow other users to use this role. And we're going to add one more policy right here as well, a simple deny all, which we'll use in a little bit. So now we just created two policies within our, our mascot system. Now that we have a policy created, we can now also create a role. This role is not actually assigned to an account day one, but you have the ability to do that, and I'll walk through that as well. So here what we're going to do, we're going to use that deny all role. We're going to create that, deny all role. We 
We're going to select the denial policy we just created, which is auto-populated off the policies you have access to, and click Add. Here's that role we just created. It's not applied to any accounts yet. We now have to have the access to be able to apply that account as well. So when we click the Deploy button, again, what we see here is the list of accounts that you are owner from. Me as the owner, again, notice before I had those two accounts. One I am just a user of, the Active Directory one, and here's the actual account that I'm an owner of. So I can actually click to deploy this role within that re-event account. So as you see up here, I now have these two, this role, this original role, which I originally created beforehand, as well as the new deny all role. So to actually access this account, again, it's relatively simple. You click the full admin role, the role that you want to assume, and it'll actually dynamically log you into the portal, AWS portal for you. What this allows you to, what, the background of this, what's actually happening is that we're actually performing assume role functionality. But the better part about this is that your users no longer need to have long-term credentials. You don't have to worry about them losing those credentials, mismatching them. It's a one-click access into the portal. But the other thing that allows you to do, for those that want to actually allow a CLI access or anything, um, this deny all role, um, you can actually view the STS tokens as well. Now, these are live STS tokens. Obviously, I created the denial policy for this specific reason, because I don't want any of you taking a picture and using these credentials. But you could actually copy and paste this into your CLI access and have a live credential. So therefore, you have that functionality. And now, all this isn't any magic in the background. These are all APIs, so you could actually integrate this and wrap this around your existing CLI so they don't actually even need to do this, or actually tie into your SDKs and everything as well. Um, so when we actually look at this from an AD perspective, the other thing I want to show you is how easy it is to add users from an Active Directory perspective. So from, if we look, look at, um, actually, let, let's show Josh logging in right now. So here. So this is another Active Directory user, Josh, logging into his mascot. Slowly. Notice he only has the one role now. So now let's look at what it actually looks like to add a new role and group within Active Directory. So here's our Active Directory structure right here. Um, you have the one role. This is kind of the role that everyone's being accessed to that you see dynamically within all of our accounts. But what we'll do now is create a new role. So we'll go grab the role name. This is a predetermined structure that we're created here. It's relatively straightforward. I'll walk you through it. So the group name is based upon a, a predetermined structure. Here it's AWS is the prefix of that group followed by the account that they should have access to followed by the specific role name that they're allowed to have access to as well. So we're creating this new group within Active Directory. We're then going to add Josh to this group. Okay. And now if we switch back to Josh and have him re-log into the console... He's been provisioned for that role and access into the account. Again, he, much simpler, automatically adds an access into the role, into the account that he's been provisioned for. It's a lot greater of a user experience as well. And then, as he, again, as he clicks on a role to actually assume that, 
it's actually being logged within both the CloudTrail events as well as within Mascot itself so that you could actually use it going forward as well. Again, all that is a framework. You can build it yourself. This isn't anything special. It's using public APIs and kind of the architecture which we discussed, but we could also help you from a professional services standpoint and actually implementing it as well. The other thing that we wanted to talk about is the continuous assurance. This is allowing automated methods to actually regularly verify or ensure your information security controls are appropriately configured. We view this as a huge force multiplier in, within AWS multi-account strategy. Now your team doesn't have to manually go across all your accounts, verify, or even worst case, find out that something's been misconfigured when an event has occurred. Now they're proactively identifying them in, in near real time or on a regular basis. So what are some things you could actually start looking for? First one that off the, right off the bat is weak policies. You could actually start looking for IAM star policies, KMS star policies. These are really powerful policies that have used mis maliciously could affect your entire account. You want to make sure that you're aware of those usage. The other thing you can start looking for is security groups. Are privileged ports exposed to the internet, such as SSH or RDP, or even memcache ports? You're able to look through your actual security groups, do a describe on them, identify what's exposed to the internet, and follow up with those individuals in a quicker, more automated method. More interestingly enough, you could also start touching those individual ports. So let's say, let's say that you have identified a service that's exposed to the internet. Is it using the default credentials for that service, or is it actually using custom credentials? You could programmatically build this framework out so that you could test these types of um, questions within your environment. The other thing that you should start doing are, are, are the proper logs enabled within your environment? Is CloudTrail configured properly? Is it pointing to that centralized account? What about VPC flow logs and uh, elastic load balancing? And then you could also start searching CloudTrail for unexpected IPs as well. So if you're having root credentials being used from external IP addresses, or even root credentials being used at all, these are all red flags you can start doing programmatically. So what does this uh, framework actually look like? Let's dive into that. We're going to be using Lambda heavily in this uh, framework because it allows us to scale more dynamically. As, as you move up in accounts, you don't want to be tied to a specific EC2 instance due to threading concerns. Now we're able to actually build this out using Lambda and DynamoDB to be highly scalable and actually get us results in a quicker manner. So what we have here is the coordinator, which is attached to the account database. This database, in our example and framework, is the same database that we're creating within Mascot, because it's holding the metadata we're going to be needing. It's going to be holding the accounts the security auditor role as well as the external ID security token that we're going to need to be able to assume that role into the account to verify what's happening. But it's also going to have a, the metadata associated to that account again. It's going to have the environment. It's going to have the data classification, which we can then use within the account coordinator to determine what tests we need to run. The same test may be across all your environment, or you may want more stringent tests within your production account, or you may want slightly different tests to ensure that you're HIPAA compliant or PCI compliant. Your account coordinator is able to do this. From there, it's going to kick off a Lambda test chain. That Lambda test chain is going to perform the test on an individual basis. So back to my example of searching for SSH exposed to the internet, that is one individual Lambda function. That one Lambda function will assume the credentials that has been passed into it from the account coordinator, be able to run that test within the resource account using the auditor role, which we pre-deployed using Mascot, and then it'll pass back the findings into our own findings database. That finding database will be the continuous record around how our audits are being run within our environment. From there, it's also interesting because we could also tie this into a ticketing service. Now, once we identify a, 
uh, content within that doesn't meet our expectations, we could automatically create a ticket based upon the owner of that account within the account database and assign it to that individual for remediation. More importantly, once that individual remediates it, let's say they forgot to close the ticket, we actually have that findings database information that next run, if we identify that finding no longer is valid, we could programmatically go in and close that ticket for them. More importantly, if they've closed the ticket and it hasn't actually been remediated, we can quickly reopen that ticket and reassign it as well. The ticketing system is a huge force multiplier in this pr problem. What it allows us to do from a security organization allows us to concentrate on securing the infra infrastructure and working with the business to understand where they're going so we can be proactive in that engagement. More importantly, we need to choose a system that allows for this integration. You need to have an API on that ticketing system. You have to be able to cut tickets and remediate them. And then you also have to be able to reopen them where appropriate. But from a security or organization, it also allows us to drive some interesting numbers. We can now show back to the business what our ROI and KPI on our tickets are. We could show how many tickets we've proactively opened, how long they've took to close, how many we, we had, we've had to reopen as well, which we can then justify what we're doing and how quickly we're responding to issues versus having a queue that was leg, uh, uh, latent in nature. The other thing, though, that we have to emphasize is providing a ticket and cutting a ticket isn't enough. You have to have some documentation on how to actually remediate that ticket. You have to be able to provide details on what, what that ticket means. Why was it cut? What are the steps they need to take to actually remediate that? And more importantly, you have to test your guidance. By creating tickets, you don't want your business units to be attacking you and say, I got this ticket, I have no idea what to do with it. It should be self-evident, and then they're only coming to you if they really don't understand something. And for again, you're building that relationship with the business units. The other thing we want to talk about is how to actually validate your CloudTrail events. We have this now, this great centralized security account where all of our CloudTrail logs are being pushed into, but how do we actually start processing them in a, in a quick and fast manner? Now, yes, you could tie this into a Splunk or other data uh, logging service, but let's say we want to use our internal services as well within AWS. You could do that. So within this, within this CloudTrail bucket, we have an SNS notification that's notifying us whenever a new CloudTrail object is being put into it. From there, this is kicking off a Lambda loader. This Lambda loader's only job is to get that SNS notification, reach into this CloudTrail bucket, and parse out the, the actual events and records within that CloudTrail. From there, it's going to push that into a Kinesis stream, which allows us to then control where that log is going to be put to, as well as bulking, grouping those logs together, which allows us to again push it to another uh, Lambda coordinator. This coordinator's job, similar to how it was before, reaches into a test database to understand, I see this event occurring within CloudTrail. Um, it then looks within the test database to understand, for that specific API, what test should I verify have occurred or did not occur. And from there, it's able to kick off the appropriate Lambda responders. So for example, if it identifies that you deployed an internet gateway within a production account, and that should never be occurring per your standards, you could actually kick off a Lambda responder that's going to proactively go in, shut down that, and remove that internet gateway within that account, and therefore shut down the malicious activity as quickly as possible. The other thing that Kinesis Stream is going to allow us to do is push all that data into EMR. 
EMR allows us to have real-time access to that data so that we're able to query against historical events from an incident response perspective. We're able to now view what's happening, be able to query this data, and actually use it to our advantage in addition to the Lambda responders which are proactively going out and remediating risk. So let's take a look at how you would actually set that up. Of course, I won't be able to show all the code because PowerPoint only allows you to fit so much on a screen, but I took some snippets of things that should be valuable to you to understand a picture as we dive deeper. So as Matt mentioned, whenever CloudTrail deposits a log file in S3, that object can trigger an event notification, and we can send that um, to wherever we want. Um, in this case, the event notification contains the, the bucket name as well as the key of that object. And so I want to have that event notification actually trigger a Lambda function. In this case, the Lambda loader that Matt was describing. So I can go in the console and I can say, when this event notification from this bucket happens on object creation, I want to trigger a Lambda function. So within that Lambda function, the incoming event, uh, which I underlined there near the top, uh, is that what actually contains that uh, S3 event notification data. So I can parse that event variable uh, for that bucket name, as well as the key name, um, and then I can make a request to S3 to get that object. Now, natively, Lambda does not have the uh, ability to actually go get the object from S3. I have to launch it into a role that has that API um, functionality allowed. And so I'll need to uh, provide the role to this Lambda function. But I'm going to have to go and get the object from S3. At this point, I'm going to parse uh, the S3 object for the CloudTrail records that are in there. I'm going to group them uh, by 20 records together. I'm going to convert that to an array and then to a string, so that way I can then put it into Kinesis. So there at the bottom, I'm, I'm putting the record to Kinesis, uh, which is a group of 20 CloudTrail events. And so I can start loading up that Kinesis stream uh, with these events. Um, at this point, once the data is in Kinesis, I'll need to extract it out. Like Matt mentioned, we can have Lambda do that. We can have EMR do that. Um, in this example, I'm going to have Lambda grab a batch size of 100, um, and I can set this up in the console or CLI. So as Lambda's reading from the Kinesis record, uh, we're going to have to pull out the payload. It is a buffer, so I'll need to parse it and convert it um, into this records variable. And then I can start actually filtering it out and looking for specific events that I'm interested in. Now, I don't want this Lambda function to do everything. I'm going to need this uh, Lambda function once it detects a record to actually kick off another Lambda job and so it can finish its processing. Now, this is just one of many ways in which you can provide those security checks. There's a number of partners uh, that will provide capabilities, perhaps something similar to this, um, or some other auditing, monitoring, or vulnerability analysis uh, that you might be interested in. Depending on what requirements you have, uh, there might be a partner that would be of interest to you, as well as even some open source tooling, um, like Netflix launched Security Monkey, or Capital One launched uh, a, a cloud auditor. Um, and so definitely take a look at some of the, the capabilities that are out there from a partner perspective, as well as an open source perspective. Let's take a look at incident response as well, which was the last part of our, our, our talk. We did talk previously in the last couple of years on incident response. We have a number of interesting sessions that could be valuable to you. They walk through a number of scenarios um, from you know, compromised access keys to actual forensic analysis. So depending on uh, what kind of incident response you're talking about, there should be an interesting session that you might be interested in watching. 
But from a high level, I just kind of want to talk about setting up an incident response program. So if you have one uh, and you're looking to convert that to your cloud strategy, or perhaps you don't have a well-versed incident response program and you're looking to build one for the cloud, um, there's still a number of steps you can take. And primarily, they both start with education. So even though the technology terms might be the same in terms of compute, storage, and database, the actual technology is slightly different. You're going to be accessing them through APIs. You can use automation. Um, you're not going to go pull a hard drive. There, there is some education that will need to happen from a security operations point of view with the forensic analysts, with the incident responders. And at that point, one, once you feel you've level set and baselined your education, you can start preparing. Make sure people have access to the tooling. Make sure that they have all the logging um, aggregated appropriately, that you've actually activated the logging. And you can start to build runbooks and playbooks on you know, certain scenarios that might be of interest to you in terms of you need to respond to an event or an anomaly that you've detected within your account. At that point, you can kick off a simulation. Uh, we did a security jam on Monday uh, with a number of simulations for customers uh, to practice incident response in the cloud. And so it's important to at least provide practice to your team and so they can actually test their runbooks and playbooks and make sure they have access to the tooling. And that simulation will um, provide you valuable feedback on whether or not you're actually prepared, whether or not you have the right mechanisms in the place. Um, and so getting that feedback loop and applying an iterative lifecycle to your incident response program will definitely help you. Now, Matt mentioned uh, the auditor role, uh, but there's two roles that uh, we primarily recommend for incident response within a multi-cloud strategy. One is a read-only role or the auditor role that Matt was talking about, as well as a privileged role, and this would be something for break glass, something that can be used in an emergency uh, to intervene and make, make a change within an account. But it'll be important to scope the trust policy to only allow assumption from the security account. And so you'll have a number of directive controls that say what should or shouldn't be happening in your account. Um, and then you'll have preventative controls that prevent people from actually doing those things that you've defined should not happen in your account. This could be things like the IAM policies, the service control policies that we talked about within AWS organizations, as well as you know, your KMS key policies and your bucket policies. You'll have a number of preventative controls that enforce your directive controls. But of course, potentially somebody could go around those controls. Perhaps you uh, did not define them appropriately or um, somebody with too much access was able to change the preventative control and went around it. So you want to make sure you have appropriate directive controls to trigger an alarm or canary that notifies you that your directive control has been uh, violated. At that point, you'll want to respond to the actual um, event that happened within your account. So you detect an anomaly, and now you need to respond to it. And you can do this one of two ways, one being manual or one being automated. Historically, the time between a detective control and the actual incident response has been very, very long. And so if we can reduce that time from a manual response to an automated response, it will definitely help you going forward, especially when you're uh, thinking about a 1,000 accounts. Automation is much, much better. And so going back to kind of what we talked about with centralizing all of your logs and providing yourself security checks across all of your accounts, you can definitely increase your ability to respond effectively uh, within these accounts. And you'll set up those common security checks uh, using the cross-account access. 
And the, the tooling will help you, definitely cutting tickets, but the response is often still manual. You can respond to some things, as Matt mentioned. So if CloudTrail is turned off, for example, you know you should go and have Lambda automatically turn it back on. But perhaps um, some of the response you don't know if what the outcome or the effect would be within those accounts, and you might cause an outage. So you can decentralize some of your controls as well because the individual account owners understand their individual business risk for that specific account. And you can set up something like using CloudWatch events that is actually waiting for an event to happen and then triggering a Lambda function that can respond to it. That Lambda function could assume the role to take action within the account. And this is actually very fast. CloudWatch events is faster than CloudTrail, so something like this would be useful. If you're curious about how this works or how to set up uh, more automated security events or security responses, there's a session later today that you might be interested in at SEC 313, so definitely take a look at that. So closing up, we've talked about a lot of different options for you. From account management with the new launch of organizations, you have a better ability to actually control those and group those into organization units that match to your own individual business units. From the role management side, we're talking about a new framework called that we have within AWS Professional Services, it's called Mascot, but that you can build out yourself that allows your organizations to actually be able to proactively access your accounts in a safe manager with man, manner without having them to actually have long-term credentials. And also allows you as an organization to be able to control the roles and policies that are being pushed out to the, those accounts. From the continuous assurance side, we talked about Lambda responders and how to actually programmatically look at your account on a reoccurring basis to understand if it matches your security baseline or if it's deviated over time. And also the ability to actually proactively look at the CloudTrail events that are coming in and respond to those. Not just generate alert from them, but proactively go into that account and either remediate that alert or at least mitigate that alert to the best of your ability. And from an incident response perspective, looking at how to actually automate that incident response and ensure that you have the proper ability to actually understand how to respond to an event from the actual uh, roles as well as the practicing of that through uh, security incident response simulations and everything. So with that, I just wanted to thank you all for coming to our session. Uh, please remember to fill out your surveys and evaluations on this because it is really important for us to know what else you want to hear about as well as if you like this session, we, we know to have more around this in the future. Also, we have a number of related sessions that talk around the multi-account strategy and about how to do security automation as well, so feel free to check out those during the rest of this week as well. So thank you very much.